0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Coronavirus restrictions are starting to ease up. Maybe your book club is going to meet again soon. But if you're still stuck at home, never fear. The book show is here to take you on a journey starting on a spaceship.
2: Let me take you on a little trip, my supersonic ship. at your disposal if you feel so
3: inclined. all right.
1: You are one of four crew members on board a high-tech, state-of-the-art warship on its way into deep space. You're there to fight aliens. You call them salamanders, these multi-limbed, resin-coated monsters that attack in their thousands and have the disturbing habit of spitting up black holes. That's the premise of Providence, a new book by the Australian author, Max Barry. It's a book that had me completely captivated a little bit terrified hello Max
4: hello thank you for having me
1: I gave the longer version of the synopsis there but you actually summed it up pretty well in a single tweet for this book you said four people are stuck on a spaceship and everything wants to eat them
4: yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard when you pour yourself into a book for years and years and, you know, you know in your heart that it's about people and it's about life and it's about how we're all connected. Um, but then you have to sum it up for people. So it came out as, yeah, four people go into space to fight aliens.
1: And, and that, that's a really exciting premise. And I guess, you know, that's the thing that a lot of kids dream of writing a story about. I mean, have you always been a guy who was into aliens and space stories?
4: Yeah, oh, yeah, it's very much a story that I've wanted to reconnect with, or a type of story that I wanted to get back to, because I've been writing full-time for uh, more than 20 years now, um, and I mostly do, I do science fiction, but it's very grounded science fiction, it's like what Australia would look like if we lived in an ultra-capitalist uh, adjunct of the United States, uh, so it's it's real life, but something is tweaked a little bit, uh, and I've done a bit of satire as well, so... Um, that's what I mainly do, but I grew up on this diet of classic science fiction, where uh, there are these, um, you know, golden age sci-fi tales of humanity encountering aliens, uh, and they they present some new threat or, or new way of looking at the world. They change something fundamental about the world that we think we live in, and force everyone to reevaluate um, who they are and what they value. So they're, they're sort of really exciting stories. There's often like a war involved. And I wanted to be able to tell a story that kind of captured that, that simple excitement uh, and the, the feeling of being in a world with new possibilities that I experienced as a teenager. Uh, but hopefully in a slightly more mature way since I have been doing this for a while now. Um, and that could have uh, sort of wider implications and, and tell a bit of a wider story as well.
1: Yeah, this is your sixth novel. Um, You're probably best known for Lexicon. What made you think that now is the time that you can finally write that space story that you always wanted to write?
4: It's funny the way it happened because I, after Lexicon, um, I had kind of a dilemma after Lexicon because I found that for me, at least, the best way to write a new book is to come to despise the old one. And normally that's like a pretty easy process for me because by the time it's ready for publication, I've rewritten it so many times. Uh, I'm like an obsessive rewriter and I enjoy that process, but also it gets to a point where I feel like throwing up if I have to look at the same page again. Uh, So normally I get to the end of the book and I'm so happy to put it away and work on something different, but I had more trouble than usual falling out of love with lexicon. So in the meantime, when I was trying to find a new book, uh, I was working on three or four different projects at the same time. And Providence was one that I never actually expected to be my next book because it was you know, quite different. It's this space opera almost where these people go out into space um, and have to confront um, this, alien, um, this alien race. Uh, and it's not the sort of thing I've ever done before. I've not, never done aliens and spaceships. So uh, it was the kind of thing I was doing just for a bit of fun in between the more serious books. Uh, but then somehow it just, uh, over time, it it grew and I found a way to elevate the story, I guess, from what it started out as into something that was a bit more interesting. Um, and, yeah, it, out it came. I never really know where the, the book is going to end up and this one ended up there.
1: And we will get into some of those deeper themes in a moment. But first, we've got to tell people about these salamanders these monsters because they're horrific uh, can you tell people about this alien threat
4: okay so the book starts with um an encounter it describes what happened when humanity has its first encounter with an alien race um, and the aliens turn out to be um, tremendously hostile uh, and they can actually Spit very condensed matter, which is basically like tiny little black holes. They can spit at people. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very, very small black holes, but they're enough to tear things apart um, as they pass.
1: Like humans.
4: Yes, that's right. That's right. Mm. Uh, so we don't really know much about this enemy in the beginning. Um, and it seems like quite a, a simple story, I guess. It's a, a classic setup, almost a, a genre a staple setup where there's. Um, An alien race that is aggressive and animalistic, uh, kind of stupid. We can't really communicate with them properly, so we don't understand them. We don't know what their true motivations are. And the response of humanity is to pour its resources into building these gigantic defences, which are Providence-class warships. And uh, the warships are so well equipped with technology uh, and run by computers that there isn't much need for humans to actually do very much. So there's only a crew of four people. The four people on board are partly there to look after the ship, but perhaps more importantly to... Uh, send social media clips back to people on Earth to uh, encourage people to believe that all the sacrifices they're making to build these things and to fund the war effort is actually worthwhile. And, uh, yeah, so it's um, that's where we start off and it uh, becomes a bit more complex from there.
1: So this spaceship, as you say, it's completely controlled by artificial intelligence. The computer decides where the ship's going to fly, when to attack. The crew really are just passengers, um, and it's it's kind of a creepy idea that you know this this sentient ship, I guess, is deciding where things go. Um, I wondered about you, Max, and how much you trust the technology in your life.
4: Yeah, I am a hobbyist programmer, so I've got this very geeky side that, uh, when it's finished with writing fiction, goes and builds a website or or programs a game or makes something like that, and. So I have written little um, AIs in the past, and uh, I, I love it too. Like, I love computers and technology, and um, there's just something um, fundamentally exciting about AI for me and about computers that uh, I just enjoy seeing what it does. But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because at the, on the one hand, like we are, we are a bit afraid of where AI will lead um, and with good reason, but it's also kind of more stupid than we expect. Uh, when you write a program, a computer program, uh, you, what happens is you give it a set of instructions and then you run the program and it does something completely different to what you thought. And when you look at it, it's not because it disobeyed you, it just followed your instructions way more literally than you ever intended. So um, the the kind of the classic fear of AI is that we start off with a, an AI that is, um, say, uh, an envelope-building machine. And then it goes out on the internet and finds out how to build envelopes really efficiently. Um, and it ends up destroying cities and wiping out all human life because that's a, a better method to actually building more envelopes. So it's, um, it's kind of like, um, an intelligence that is completely alien to, uh, anything that we can imagine. And the, the crew of, uh, the Providence ship and in, in this book, they try to, imagine what the what the ship is thinking they try to put human um faces i guess on the ship which can't communicate with them they can only guess at what it's doing and um yeah that's that's something that humans naturally do we always try to tell stories and find meaning and purpose in uh the things we see around us i think that's actually one of the most remarkable things about humankind is, is our ability to find patterns um, and create a kind of story and meaning from those patterns that may or may not actually be purposeful um, already.
1: I have talked about this idea of us anthropomorphizing technology yes. in our lives. I talked to Ian McEwen about this actually and said to him that I often talk to my robot vacuum cleaner like it's my child. Yes. Um, I, I, do you do this or because you come from that tech background, are you able to be quite straightforward and understand that this is technology and it's, it's not a person, it doesn't have feelings and I can't understand it?
4: Oh, I definitely do. In fact, my robot vacuum cleaner is named Beadfield after a character in this book. Um, so, yes, it's. I think that's one of the, the great things that we do, um, and it's fine, you know, as long as we can also, once the, the robot vacuum cleaners start rising up and attempting to kill us all, that we remember that they're not actually a, as full of emotion and personality as we thought they were. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, you know, I think... Uh, technology as a tool is a wonderful thing Um, it can take us to some unexpected places um, which is daunting of course but you know we um, it's very hard to foresee both the benefits and the um, dangers of technology in advance Uh, and the one I always think about is when um, I was a kid I remember there was this real concern over um, the early stages of like test tube babies, this sort of um, in vitro fertilization technology that was just emerging in the 70s um, and possibly 80s. And people were naturally very concerned about what happens when um, you let people mess with biology in that sort of way. Um, And here we are sort of 40 years later, and I have two daughters that are only here because of that IVF technology. And uh, it's just, I couldn't imagine my life without it. So it's um, it's a path that we that has a lot of ethical questions around it, but I think inevitably what happens is that the practical benefits of the technology kind of pull us along, regardless of whether we think it's wise or not, um, until it's just pervasive and common.
1: Mm. Uh, you mentioned that our four crew on board the Providence aren't really needed to be there. Their main purpose is to sell the war effort back home. So making videos, I mean, this is maybe a bit cynical of you, Max, but are you saying here that a lot of warfare is really all about PR?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, that is obviously a big part of it. In a democracy, you need to have um, you need to sell the war to people um, for them to go along with it. And I think that has pretty clearly happened every time Australia has gone to war or has gone into a conflict as part of some group of allied countries. There's there's always you know, a lot of um, storytelling that goes along with it. Um, and the truth is often very complex. Um, so in, in this one, for example, there is um, pretty clearly a, a survival issue um, for the human race. That there's that We are actually threatened by this alien species in the book, um, and therefore there does need to be some sort of military response. Um, now, part of that military response is maybe a bit corrupt, um, and there are corporations who insert themselves into the process, and there are people who... Um, derive personal benefit from, from pushing it in a certain way. Um, and there are also naturally protests against it. But um, yeah, it's it's um, the regardless of whether the war is right or wrong, it does need to be this sales pitch that goes along with it. So I've been writing about persuasion and uh, marketing for quite a long time as well. And that's just sort of an area that I find personally interesting about how we all get persuaded and how we establish that a certain... Um, common idea of truth um, especially in in a time of conflict
1: speaking of marketing you of course are trying to sell a book at the moment and it's a pretty terrible time to be doing it as we undergo this pandemic i saw a blog post of yours how to promote a book during a global pandemic how bad is the timing of this for you
4: well, it's not great. I mean, it's really not. I was I was going to go um, for a tour of the US because I every time I get a book published, I get to actually go over and visit America and tour around for a while. And it's my rare opportunity to leave the house. And, and this time I was actually going to take my daughter, who's now 14, along with me. And uh, that was going to be a great trip. I haven't had a book published before this for five or six years. So yeah, it was going to be... Um, Really good fun. I was going to do a few bookstore events in Australia, and as it was getting closer and closer, there was you know one travel ban after another, and yeah, around mid March it became pretty clear that it wasn't going to happen. So yeah, that was a shame. Um, on the one hand, you think maybe people will be stuck inside, needing something to do, so maybe everyone will read a few more books than they did before. So so who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I have a job that uh, is not you know, I don't need to go anywhere in the first place. So I feel like I'm one of the relatively lucky ones in terms of how um, this has affected my life. Um, And in fact, I was thinking that when we all had to stay inside in January because outside was full of smoke, um, that was actually worse for me because I couldn't go for a run. I couldn't take the dog outside without inhaling smoke. So now I can go outside and exercise so long as I stay away from people, which suits me just fine.
1: I was talking to William Gibson, the sci-fi author earlier this year, and he was talking about the fact that it's kind of hard to imagine you know these these preposterous futures when the world is so nuts at the moment. I mean, is this something that you reflect on as a writer of you know different types of speculative fiction?
4: yeah, I, it has it has surprised me how quickly we transitioned from the before times into now. Because I, I think if you'd told me a few months ago that we would pass laws in this country that required everyone to stay home except for for designated reasons, and people would be fined for leaving their house or, or gathering in numbers, I would have struggled to think of how that would be the case without mass protests. Because it seems to drive a dagger right into the heart of, of a democracy. But um, of course, what happened is uh, a survival issue came along, and we have a hierarchy of needs with our socialization and self-actualization needs at the top and really base needs like survival right down the bottom that that are the foundation of everything else. So um, in in a time like this, yeah, it it was surprising to me how quickly it changed. Um, And because for Providence, I had this situation where all of a sudden the world pivots very heavily into building defenses um, against uh, an extraterrestrial threat. And yeah, at the time I was writing it, I had to think, you know how would people respond would we really just drop everything basically to um to try to defend ourselves and yeah i think actually we would um from seeing how quickly the response has been worldwide um yeah it's it is amazing how quickly things can change and all of these science fiction stories that involve uh, apocalypses or you know massive disasters of some kind or some sort of sweeping social change even um like the handmaid's tale where everything changes quite quickly i think yeah this has really shown how quickly some of these things that seem quite fanciful could become reality
1: max barry we were talking about the difficulty in trying to sell a book during this time and i found a video game on your website you have made a video game to promote providence uh, which is really fun um just can you quickly explain what you've done and are people actually using it
4: right yeah so i no i did mention i was kind of a geeky programmer in my spare time so what i did for providence was build a little web game where it's it's kind of a choose your own adventure like those old choose your own adventure books where you read a bit of text and you decide what to do but um, a little bit more interactive than that because I could build in these old school graphics. Um, so yes, you, um, you go to providence.training and there you will be asked to join a crew for a simulated battle on board a providence class warship. And you get to chat to the other people, um, in the crew and make decisions about, um, how you should defend the ship or how you should fight the enemy basically. Um, so that was good fun for me. Um, cause I'm a bit of a game builder and a bit of a, a writer as well. I got to use the two together for this little thing. And, um, yeah, I, I haven't looked at the stats for, for how many people have played it yet, but, um, yeah, I think it has gone around a bit. I would actually like to, like, there's a fundamental decision that people have to make towards the end of the game. And I would actually like to compare how many people made one decision versus the other. You have to decide whose side you're on to a degree. Um, Mm. so that would be interesting.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Uh, I actually played it after reading about 75 pages of your book, then I played the game, then I read the rest of the book and I think that was quite a fun way to do it because you're playing the role of one of the characters and I felt like I really understood him by the time I got to play him in the game and how he might respond. Um,
4: Yeah, that's great. I tried to avoid any spoilers or anything in the game itself Um, but yeah, that's probably a nice way to do it.
1: Uh, this isn't the first time you've done this for a book, though, right? You created another game called Nation States for another book called Jennifer Government.
4: Yeah, yeah. Basically, what happened is I had my first book published um, in the late 90s, I think 99. Um, and I was you know just a kid at the time. I was um, had stars in my eyes about how this process was going to work. Um, I'd been tremendously fortunate in that I'd been picked up by an American publisher for my first book. So I kind of thought that I was living this incredible dream where bestsellerdom was basically guaranteed and all I had to do was wait for the publisher to put the book on the shelves and you know then I would become this literary superstar. And what I discovered is that unless there's some really compelling reason, people don't buy books by authors they've never heard of. So um, the book sold terribly and it vanished without a trace. And I realized that for book number two, I actually needed to make some effort myself into giving people a reason to at least know that this book was out there. And if they wanted to look at it on a bookshelf or or look it up and decide whether it was for them or not, that was fine. But I had to at least break that first barrier of getting awareness out there. So, yeah, I created this, um, this web game called Nation States, uh, where you can create your own country and decide. You get faced with these political dilemmas about whether you'll, um, make organ donation mandatory, uh, for example, in people who die or, or a bunch of, you know, issues like that. Actually, over, I think we're over 1300 different issues now. But this game, um, I put out there in almost, almost 20 years ago now. So it's really early web game. It's still going today. It's been played by, I think over 6 million people at this stage. So there's just hordes of people who think it's kind of cool to run their own country according to their own warped political ideals, it turns out. And yeah, I think that's also a big reason as to why I get to write books because I've got like this, this group of people who came for the game, um, and learned about the book that way.
1: I had a go at this one too. Um, in all those years of administering that game, have you discovered the perfect form of government, Max? Huh.
4: Well, the whole point is that there is no perfect form of government. Everything's a trade-off. So every issue that you face, you have to make a decision between these uh, bad choices. So, yeah, people people sometimes think that, you know, they've made the perfect country, um, but I don't think that everyone or many people would agree with them like the people who think there is such a thing as a perfect state um, tend to be quite extreme in their views so i think the rest of us are probably um, just enjoying muddling through and making the best of of difficult situations
1: I, i imagine it must be such fun writing these scenarios i wondered where the overlap is for you between writing for say a game and writing fiction are there are there similarities in what you do there
4: Yeah, there are. There are definitely some similarities, but I think I feel like they use very different parts of my brain in that I will write fiction for a while and find it really refreshing to go write some code um, and vice versa as well. If I've been programming too much, then it just feels so mentally refreshing to actually go work on fiction for a while. Um, I think the differences are that in programming, it's really easy to see how you can improve things. You have... um, a bit of code that could work better, and even if you're making a kind of creative decision about the code, it's still reasonably easy to tell um, what the problems are and what you can fix and what you can improve. Whereas working on a novel is like swimming around in this endless sea where there's no reference points anywhere, and um, you built the sea yourself, and nothing makes sense in an objective way. It's all subjective. So I think writing fiction is definitely an easier way to go slowly insane and it's, been, it's much more challenging as, as a profession than programming.
1: I think also your experience with games has given you a really good grasp of pace and action and I think, you know, this book grabbed me from the first page because it really chugs along with lots of action, lots of plot. But it also, and I should say this is very character-driven, we get to know these characters very well, how hard is it to strike that balance between action and character?
4: It is It is challenging and I think I've changed over time. So when I was doing this uh, as a kid, I was way more into plot and um, probably Jennifer Government is a novel of mine that is... Very, very plot-driven. And I found that as I've gotten older, both as a reader and a writer, I just require a little bit more from my characters than I used to. And I can't go along with a story where I feel like the characters are are not real people. So, yeah, this uh, one of the appeals of this novel was that with Providence, I have four people who are stuck in a confined area. And they're on this gigantic spaceship, but it's all very cramped, and um, they're cut off from humanity for long stretches of time. So it was a really good opportunity to actually develop the characters a little more. Uh, and they're all there for different reasons uh, and those impact on where they go in the mission and what happens to them.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a worrying insight into what extreme isolation can do to people.
4: Yeah, like not for me. I could do I could do years on a starship, no problem, I'm sure. I'd be like Gilly in the yeah. book. But, yeah, some people, I know during this isolation um, it's this is probably the least isolated I've felt for years because, I mean, first of all, I'm doing things like this, like radio interviews, whereas usually I, I don't talk to other human beings very much. Um, but also because I think all the extroverts are stuck at home now. And so they're making phone calls and they're calling me up, whereas they used to be able to interact with each other and satisfy their their needs for social interaction that way. So, yeah, it's, um, it's isolation, but I'm also speaking way more um, to humans than I expected.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you today, Max Barry. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Max Barry's new book is Providence, it's a ripper, it's published by Hachette. You're listening to The Book Show, coming to you from ABC RN, on air, on podcast and via the ABC Listen app. Your host is Claire Nichols. Dr Norman Swan is to a pandemic what Anthony Green is to an election. It's true that's the Stella shortlisted Australian author Chrissy Neen reading the opening line of her erotic short story, a story called Dr. Norman Swan. Now Chrissy wrote and performed this story for a new weekly book club called Lust in the Time of Coronavirus. And this is one of dozens of new online book groups, podcasts and festivals that have all popped up in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I'm going to play a little bit more of that story for you soon. It is really good. But I thought it would be a good time now to check in on how the coronavirus outbreak is being felt right across the book industry. So let's start at my local bookshop. I called Jane Seaton. She's the owner and manager of Beaufort Street Books here in Perth. And she told me that when social distancing measures were first introduced, there was a big rush on books. It coincided with the school holidays and we saw people coming
2: in and they weren't buying one or two books. If they've got two or three children, they were buying like $300 worth of books. A little bit like toilet paper.
1: (laughs) Since then, the shop has focused on online sales, with staff spending hours a day on the phone to customers, helping them to virtually browse the shelves. So whether you want
2: a crime novel, whether you want something light, whether you want an Australian author, just work through the lists and then make a few suggestions. And so what we've been doing through this time is then finding that book on our website, copying the link and then emailing the link, various links of some suggestions to that customer for them to go and have a little look and read a bit more about it. It sounds time consuming. It is time consuming and when you only have one phone you can only deal with one person at a time but everyone's been pretty patient and a lot of people have been maybe emailing hey look I need some ideas about this book and so we can do it um, over a time frame and just Respond with the various suggestions.
1: And that time consuming process really does seem to have paid off. Beaufort Street Books has seen a 50% upturn in sales compared to this time last year. Jane tells me customers are choosing to read old classics as well as some of the big releases from last year that they might have missed. So that's great news for Beaufort Street Books. But more generally, bookshops around the country are really doing it tough. According to figures from the analysts at Nielsen BookScan Australia, there was an initial flurry of book buying at the start of the pandemic, but that has worn off. And while more books have been sold this year than at the same time last year, the money or value coming in from those book sales is down by 6.5%. In other words people are buying more cheap books
0: i guess there's two things one is that a lot of people have been concerned about managing kids at home and so i think that there's been a bigger lift in children's books than in adult books and that may well represent a, a an increase at the at lower price points in the market so I guess that would be that be one thing. Uh, the other would be probably that there's been a reduction, I suspect, in the number of technical, professional, and academic books, uh, with the um, you know universities being not there, and that some of that may be affecting the numbers as well.
1: That's Michael Gordon Smith, the CEO of the Australian Publishers Association. And reduced book revenue is obviously bad news for Australian publishers, some of which have had to lay off staff or reduce hours during this pandemic. And publishers have also had to make some really tough decisions about the books slated for release during this period. Now, some high profile titles like Trent Dalton's new book, they've been pushed back to later in the year. But generally, most releases have still gone ahead.
0: It's a bit of a gamble. You know, on the one hand, if um, nobody else is advertising, then perhaps your chance to have more share of the voice and share of the market is increased. But on the other hand, authors are not able to go to book tours. They're not able to attend festivals. They're not able to be in touch with readers in a way that they usually are, which is so important to, you know, hand hand selling is, is still very much... Uh, an important part of word of mouth and connection between author and reader.
1: So if you can't stand out from the crowd with a video game like Max Barry, maybe you go for an online book launch instead.
5: Hello! Hi, Hi Anna! Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you Katya? We meet again. We do? This That's is so good. awesome.
1: So what you're listening to there is the launch of young adult author Cartier de Becerra's new book, Oasis. And there are heaps of these happening at the moment via various video conferencing apps. Now, an online launch is obviously not the same as a launch in a bookstore with wine and cheese. But there are some real perks to this medium, according to the host of this particular session, Anna Waitley. She also launched her own book during this pandemic called Peter Lyers Rating Normal.
5: For me, I could have a book launch with people from all around Australia and around the world. Uh, people logging in from the UK um, and for other events from Europe and America. And and to have that many people when you're in Brisbane, you know, you <laughs> certainly wouldn't attract a crowd that large and have all the people that you know in the industry um, be able to, to come along. So that has been wonderful and then the personal contact as well and for me i'm quite um, i'm i physically wouldn't cope with this many events in a row probably um so i've been able to to do a lot more as an author so yeah it has actually been great for me in some ways
1: can you talk to me about the art of the backdrop i've seen a lot of people really working hard to make their backdrops beautiful <laughs> for their zoom launch or their facebook live
5: launch Yeah, it's fun because you can, you know, there are people who will probably, and we all do it, we all tune out a little bit sometimes when people are talking and you start looking at the bookshelf, is a big one. Finding out what's on someone's bookshelf is great. But it's an opportunity then to share with people what you like or what you're reading. Or for my AusChat series, I keep a bookshelf uh, of the books you know, belonging to my guests. And then if you add lights and some decorations and it just gets everyone in the mood and feeling that positive vibe, it's been really fun.
1: And that brings me back to Chrissy Neen and Dr Norman Swan.
2: On the podcast, Dr Norman Swan was talking about curves,
1: flattening them, or letting it rip. As we all search for connection during the pandemic, online book clubs like Chrissy Neen's weekly gathering for fans of erotic fiction have really taken off. Toxic. She tried the word in her own mouth, trying to mimic his accent. She noticed how full and bright her lips were in reflection. She said,
2: flattening the curve. She said, Contact tracing,
1: she said, quarantine, quarantine. The hairs on the back of her neck started to rise. And it's not just erotic fiction. Right now, the online world has something for every type of book lover.
4: Oh, hello. I wanted to welcome you to today's edition of 10 Minutes with Andrew Shongrier. Hi
0: everyone, it's me again. I'm uh, reading to you for Lockdown Reading Group tonight.
1: Hello, and welcome to Marion Monday's ebook club. And I hope
0: you're all well. May the fourth be with you. I am going to read to you tonight some
4: poetry. Now, I think a lot of you have been full of anxiety, worrying, perhaps hourly. What is Andrew Shangrier up to during this time? What is Andrew Shangrier wearing? What is Andrew Sean Greer buying online?
0: Hi, I'm Daniel Radcliffe, and this is chapter one of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Petitioners are full of prayers to fall in pity's way. But if her hand the gift forbears, they'll sooner swear than pray.
4: Thank you for asking. I have been drinking. The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear
2: was that somebody would discover it.
1: Even Jane Seaton at Beaufort Street Books is getting on board. Now, normally the book events she hosts are very local, but with authors around the world all in lockdown, she has cast her net wider and she's locked in Zoom events with international authors, including Lionel Shriver.
2: We've actually tried to embrace the, the Zoom thing and we've managed to get a few international authors that we're doing in conversations with in the next three to four weeks and we are intending to keep doing that. Even
1: in two or three months, we'll be doing it. And is that because it it works better? You can get more people attending? You can make more money? Uh, it's it's really, you know,
2: bookstores have always been that link between the reader and the author. And in Perth, we would often struggle to get uh, Australian authors across the country because of the expense and, you know, international authors as well. But this is a perfect uh, platform to be able to bring those voices to the customers in their own lounge room while
1: they've got their slippers on and a little glass of wine. So for Jane Seaton and her shop, Zoom author conversations are one positive thing she can take away from this pandemic, something that could help her business in the future. But more broadly, what will the COVID-19 interruption mean for the future of the book industry? Michael Gordon-Smith says the aftershocks of COVID-19 will be felt for some time with space on the bookshelves likely to be one of the first post-corona challenges.
0: What's going to happen when retailers go back in and look at the stocks that they were holding that they were expecting to sell during this time but haven't sold? Are they going to clean out their, um, their shelves and look for ways to restock uh, so is there going to be a you know a, a surge both in handling but also in the, the numbers of returns that they're looking for from um, publishers. So I, I think it's just you know it's just a, um, very difficult to forecast.
1: Michael Gordon Smith there from the Australian Publishers Association, and remember you can support authors and the wider publishing industry right now by buying a book. The coronavirus has also delayed this year's Booker International Prize. Now, the Booker International is an award for a book translated into English and published in the UK or Ireland. And whenever the prize is announced, this year I'm very excited to say that there is an Australian book on the shortlist. The Enlightenment of the Greengage Tree by shakufe Azar was originally written in Farsi it tells the story of a 13-year-old Iranian girl, Baha, who follows the fortunes of her family in the violent aftermath of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Now, Shikufay Azar joins me from her home in Geelong. Shikufe, congratulations.
3: Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me.
1: How did you find out that you were on the shortlist?
3: Uh, my publisher, uh, Europa Edition from UK, sent me email and congratulate me for being shortlisted. So it was very uh, emotional and very happy moment for me. Who
1: was the first person that you told?
3: My daughter, I'm living with my eight-year-old daughter, so she was the first one who had this news. And then I sent message to my mother in Iran and my sisters in Iran so and my best friends in Iran, so everybody was so thrilled and happy.
1: That's fantastic. Now, you grew up in Iran. You were just seven years old when the Islamic Revolution began there. What do you remember of this time?
3: Uh, hundreds of dark and bitter memories from my teenagehood, and um, and even as a young and as a journalist, as a woman. Uh, so you know everything is compulsory in Iran. Hijab is compulsory as a as a student in higher school or even in middle school. We being uh, we forced to join to the pro-government ceremonies, pro-government protests, or even always we get arrested. It, it, this is a common memory of every woman in Iran that we hundreds times arrested by a uh, moral police in the streets and they because of. Or makeup, or tight tightness, or shortness of outflows, or um, we always feel scared, especially as a journalist, all the time. We felt that uh, if we pass the red lines that government choose for us, and it would be dangerous for ourselves and also for our colleagues at media and also our family. So, if in short, if I want to say what is my feeling and what I remember as in Iran, as a you know as a woman and as a, um, a journalist it's all in all is just fear and uh, all the time feeling of uh, uh being suppressed
1: you you say there were arrests did were you yeah. taken to prison
3: Oh yes even one night they took they uh, they kept me uh, just because of my my clothes as it was my my dress was short and uh they said it should be longer and so they kept me in the detention center one night and my mother came with my identity uh papers and we we signed that we are, we will, we promised that since now I will be a good girl and always will have a long dress and <laughs> clothes Wow, that, that would have yes. been
1: so frightening
3: It is frustrating for every single woman in Iran And it's happened all the time and always and right now
1: You were a journalist That seems like a yes. very brave job to do in Iran
3: yeah, it depends to what kind of journalist you want to be. You know, there are two types of journalists. One type are the kind of journalists that they work like someone who is just employee, that they go to the media, newspaper, and they write what they want. And another type of journalist, uh, the such as me and my colleagues, we critic the regime, we critic all of the wrong laws, and we also defend the rights for women, children, you know, um, workers, and uh, in the uh, different media, in the private media, newspapers.
1: And this this led to you eventually having to leave Iran, right? Why did you have to leave?
3: Yes, unfortunately. So I've been jailed three times because of my writing, and the last time I've been isolated for three months. And uh, when it happened, my after I, I came out of the jail, my mother and my older sisters, they just say that it doesn't work anymore because all the time, since now, they will arrest you all the time, and next time will be longer. So it's, it's the reason that I uh, flee Iran to Australia. And uh, and it doesn't happen only for me, it happened for most of my colleagues. Some of them uh, kept in the jail for seven years just because of writing and it's really annoying.
1: How, how did you feel to
3: leave? Oh, it's sad. It was really sad. It was really... Um, I was full of... <sighs> Deep, I don't know, depression, sadness, anger, and uh, I remember when I came to Australia and and imagined that my work is writing in Farsi, and I studied for the literature and in high school and in university, so Persian literature was the the only thing that I had in my hand as a skill. But then I came suddenly to Australia with no language. It was really frustrating. And um, this feeling actually made me to write my novel when I came to Australia.
1: So where were you when you started writing the book?
3: I was in Perth. When I came to Australia by boat, uh, I'd been set five days in the ocean and then we received to Christmas Island. And then I got very sick because of that five days in the roofless uh, uh, boat and um, very old and, you know, boat. And uh, it was rainy, it was, you know, stormy. So when I came to Christmas Island, I get really sick. And they thought that I have TB and they transferred me to Perth. Uh, but thank God, when uh, they had the examination, they found it's not a TB, it's just kind of long sickness, and they gave me medication, and I get better. So I've been in Paris when I started my life in Australia, so I've been so angry and upset from the whole, uh, everything that's happened to me in the last, you know, 14 years, and not just to me, everyone in my father, what happened to my father, because my father was a writer and uh, most of his books never got permission by government to be published. And lots of my friends, they've been artists and writers and, you know, I, all of them all the time annoyed by the regime. So when I, when I came to Australia, I felt that I don't have language. I don't have my, my favorite job, which I really love it. I love journalism. And... Uh, and I was so depressed, and I said, okay, at least you don't have language, but you have freedom of expression. And this book actually is is written because I had this freedom. And while I had language in my country, but I hadn't freedom of expression to write whatever I wanted because government all the time censor your vote or arrest you because of your writing. So this um, collection of uh, Emotions made me To write this novel
1: And it's a beautiful book that Balances that anger um, And the, the cruel realities Of the regime with these wonderful yeah. Moments of magic realism We meet jinns Mermaids, ghosts How difficult was it to balance the The light and the shade In this book
3: I wrote this book in a very Creative And uh, multi-layer, you know, and uh, complicated... a style of writing and it's not easy to explain how it happened but what I, in the all in all if I can if I want to explain that how I create this book I can say the core of this story is on based of my journalism uh, experience and information about uh, political and social uh, story, true stories that happened in Iran in the last 14 years and then I covered this true, bitter and, you know, dark story on the beautiful layers of Iranian mythology, Iranian, you know, traditional of storytelling style and also fairy tales and uh, lyric tone. Mm. We
1: spend our time in the book with one family and they are mourning the loss of their son. What has happened to Sorab? In the book,
3: yes. So Rob is the only character of my book that he is almost always absent. Um, so So Rob is a very innocent young boy that uh, got arrested just because he had few books in the, in their house and that you know Iranian regime. Uh, immediately in the first decade, they searched home to home to find if there is any uh, books or, you know, magazines or even you know, cussets of a speech of people that they don't accept. So they came to the, the family house and they arrested Rob and they uh, kept him in the jail for months and tortured him, physical torture him, and in the end uh, they executed him. But he Suhrab is a symbol of hundreds of and hundreds of Iranian young people that they uh, executed uh, in the first decade after the after the Islamic Republic happened, especially in the year of nineteen eighty eight, that in just one one summer, in just one summer they killed five thousand of innocent people that the only their only crime was their uh,
1: um, they believe on
3: something that this
1: regime didn't believe. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. It was. It was a um, a difficult book for me. It was a beautiful book, but it was so so sad. Shook affair. Yeah
3: yeah I'm sorry. I know that Australian love happy ending novel, and uh, I see this in the face of my friends, who are writers even, but uh, Australian writer. But this is literature, and literature, I think the, 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 um, one of the beauty of literature is to to show you what is really the feeling of a human being in a different situation. So people in Iran are really suffering in many, many ways. And people who know more, they suffer more. And uh, when you... Start to understanding what's really going on in your society, in your, you know, uh, in political as- aspect or in, uh, you know, religious aspect or anything that happened to your people. So you can't uh, stop thinking of uh, your country and your people. And this, is, this novel is the result of my understanding about our situation in Iran, which is really, really um, sad and suffering.
1: Shukafe, can you tell me about your relationship with your translator? This was written in Farsi and translated Mm. into English, uh, but the Mm -hmm. name of the translator is not on the cover of the book.
3: Yeah, that's right. And um, it has reason because of the security to keep him or her. I don't mention even her. I don't know how you say in English, day, you call it day so uh, to keep the day uh, safe we couldn't put uh, it's really it's real name because uh, they they go to iran and back and uh, maybe definitely it would be dangerous for them because my novel is all about critiquing Islam in Iran, the, the way that governments um, explain or interpret Islam in Iran, and also I critique the regime, leader of Iran, and uh, so everything about this regime is critiqued in in, the, in my novel. So it was really dangerous for my translator if he or she went back to Iran. So this is the why we made decision to not mention. Its real real name, and our relationship in the process of translating was really good. We had communication through the phone all the time, and um, uh, they asked me any problem that they had. And uh, the process of translating was take us something like two years, and it wasn't easy book to be translated from Farsi to English, especially Farsi, and especially my style of writing is very poetic, very um, lyric, and it needs a high uh, level of the uh, vocabulary that thanks God my translator was very good in it.
1: Um, your English is obviously fantastic now. Um, have you oh, been absolutely. able to look at the book in English and and admire the translation?
3: Oh no, unfortunately. I you know, I wanna start my PhD in literature soon, but still when I wanna read loudly, I can't do it in a you know, fluent way. But yes, I read books in English a lot, I read articles and but since when I came to Australia my English was limited to few words or just few sentences but yes i study hard to learn better english i can say i'm not as smart at learning language but it took me as you see it took me nine ten years to be in this level of language
1: well i think it's pretty incredible shuka fair all the best with the booker international i think it's pretty safe to say that here on the book show we're hoping you'll win
3: Thank you very much. It's really feeling amazing that uh, all Iranian and Australian be happy. They've been happy that I've been shortlisted, especially for Iranian. It was really, really uh, exciting because Iranian never been in the um, Booker Prize before. And so we'll see. And I am, I am happy with this uh, level of the recognition in the book, uh, Booker Prize. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. The Enlightenment of the Gitch Tree is published by Wild Dingo Press. It's one of six novels shortlisted for the Booker International.
5: I get a good feeling,
1: and yeah. thanks for joining me for the book show today. I'm Claire Nichols. Happy reading.
5: I never before, no, no. I get a good feeling, yeah.